Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Simon Nate, and I am an instructor at Vancouver Area Universities, named the UBC and Kwanlin Polytechnic University. For today's interview, I have invited Myra Tofik, author of the book For the Encouragement of Learning, The Origins of Canadian Copyright Law, published by the University of Toronto Press. Myra is Distinguished University Professor and the Don Rodzik Family Chair in Law and Entrepreneurship at the Faculty of Law, University of Windsor. She is a graduate of McGill University and the University of London. She is an expert in intellectual property law. From 2012 to 2019, she served first as Vice President and then as the President of the Canadian Association for the Study of Book Culture. An active member of the Bibliographical Society of Canada, Myra was the co-editor in fall 2017 of Bound by Three Oceans, Reading, Writing, Printing and Publishing in Canada Since Confederation, a special issue of the papers of the Bibliographical Society of Canada. Myra, it is a real pleasure to have you as my guest today. Thank you, Simon. I'm really happy to be here. So to begin, your new book is the culmination of nearly 20 years of legal history and book history research. Could you tell us what first motivated you to study the history of copyright law in Canada? You know, 20 years is a long time to spend to a project like this, so I'd like to explain why it took so long. And part of it is um, the reason I started the, the, the research was I'd always been interested in the history of copyright law. And I'd read the works of, there was a lot of scholarship on American copyright history and on British copyright history. And there was a dearth of material on Canadian history. And I was teaching copyright law at the University of Windsor at the Faculty of Law. And in the early 2000s, the Supreme Court of Canada started to weigh in on Canada's copyright tradition. Something, so it was something they really hadn't, the courts hadn't really done before. And they claimed, and often they contradicted each other, that our early law was influenced by British or American or French uh, laws or all three. And as they were making those assertions and I was teaching copyright law to law students, I became really curious about it because they cited very little authority and support. And what I had been taught, sort of as, as a law student, a graduate student, and in my early years as an academic, was that our law was a straight line from the British. And our copyright, our copyright provenance matters uh, because it means something different, at least in legal theory, to say that our law is derived from Brent, French or American or British sources. So there are two great, I'm just to give you the short sort of explanation, there are two great copyright traditions around the world. The British common law tradition, which is a copyright system, and the French continental European droit d'auteur system. And you can see from the terms themselves, copyright versus droit d'auteur, where the orientation of the law lies. A, a droit d'auteur system uh, tends to prefer or, you know, or privileges authors as the primary beneficiaries of the law. In a British copyright system, now copyright in that British system means the right to the copy, as in the right to man the manuscript rather than the right to copy, as in what we'd understand it now as the right to reproduce, but it was the right to the manuscript. And they saw the legal entitlement as primarily for the benefit of publishers, industries, those who were printing the copy, those who bought the copy to print. The American system is derived from the British. It's a, it's a common law system, but its history is particular. 
because um, when copyright law emerged in the United States in the late 18th century, the, the United States was a developing country. And it, you know, the, the law sort of emphasized then the interests or rights of what we call users of copyright works, you know, in, in the 19th century as readers, basically that the law should promote the interests of authors and publishers only to the extent necessary to encourage the widest dissemination of knowledge for the public benefit. Um, and in modern copyright parlance, we refer to the U.S. system as being the most user-friendly or the most user-oriented jurisdiction. So I wanted to know where Canadian law sat within these three orientations. And especially, you know, it, I was really in, um, prompted to start the work because Canadian judges were opining about our tradition without much evidence to support their assertions. So that began the, this 20-year project. Your book is titled For the Encouragement of Learning the Origins of Canadian Copyright Law. I wanted to emphasize the word Canadian in your book title. And that's because, you know, before reading your book, I thought copyright law, especially in common law countries, you know, would be fairly similar. So I would like to, to sort of know uh, what makes the development of this country's copyright law distinctly Canadian. Well, I just want to say, first of all, that the title itself is a reference to the first copyright act in the world, which is the British Statute of Anne, that, which started with the phrase, an act for the encouragement of learning. Um, the early Canadian, so the lower, the, 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 first, the first hint of copyright arose in 1824 in Lower Canada. Quebec. Uh, and the early those early copyright bills were similarly titled, an act for the encouragement of learning, as was the first U.S. federal statute, uh, which was enacted in 1790, was also an act for the encouragement of learning. And there's more, there's more text that follows from that. But the, even the meaning of an act for the encouragement of learning differs, differed between jurisdictions. You know, it didn't mean the same thing to every jurisdiction that adopted that phrase. Uh, and so part of, you know, what's interesting, I think, and I, I appreciate the question to ask about what's distinctively Canadian about all of this, the, our act for the encouragement of learning and our copyright history is, first of all, to recognize that, you know, the titles, were, the early titles were similar uh, to both the UK and, and the Americans. Um, the text of the first Lower Canadian Statute, the first Canadian Act, which was passed in Quebec in 1832, and the, the, the subsequent statute by the province of Canada in 1841 were uh, very similar to the American Copyright Act of 1831. And the American Copyright Act was very similar to the Statute of Anne of 1710. So we're not talking about widely divergent statutory texts. They're all derived from the same source. But laws don't exist in isolation. So they arrive, they sort of they arrive and evolve within jurisdictionally specific cultural, political, and economic contexts. So the same law sort of manifests itself differently in different places. It's kind of like, I, do, I mean, I, I'm interested in this idea of different Englishes too, so the, the English language as it as it's uh, transplanted in different ju jurisdictions develops differently. And so that's the way I, I look at the way in which our law, though our laws and our early laws derive from you know, at, at its origin, British sources as filtered through American orientation, sort of that we have our own story to tell. So what's distinctly Canadian about this history? So first, and this is for me was the most important uh, 
revelation in a way was that the lower Canadian history, so that, that first part, there's sort of from 1824 to 1841, um, when Lower Canada f- was the first jurisdiction in British no- North America to consider and, and enact a Copyright Act, that lower, the lower Canadian history provides the purest example of copyright as education policy. And this is important, I think, because, you know, the early U.S. and the early uh, British histories contain that element of education policy. It's very much present as well, but it's more diffuse because at the same time, uh, the that uh, user orientation or the you know the the education element competes with you know the authors seeking rewards for their efforts or publishers seeking trade protection from the legislature. But here it really is pure. You really see it's really about teachers going to the legislature and saying. We, we have this one manuscript copy. We can't teach from one copy. We need to make multiple copies for our students, but we can't afford the cost of printing. So can you help us? And, you know, the legislature would then, in the early days, provide some, some financial support, which eventually led to the enactment of a Copyright Act. But th- there was no other interest at play. The Publishers weren't coming to legislature and saying, look, we have no incentive to publish. You, you know, our industry is, it can't grow without copyright. Or authors who are coming and saying, you know, I've done all this effort and I've added to the cultural output of this um, jurisdiction, of this, of this province, and therefore I, I, need, I should get some reward for that. It really was pure about this idea that, that you, school books and the system of public education was very important. Education required school books. School books, uh, the cost of printing was way too high, and so there had to be a solution. Um, so that's one that I find really, really important. Uh, that uh, you know, uh, and it and the other aspect of the early Lower Canadian uh, example is that there was no foreign interference in copyright policy back then, and. This is arguably, and I will stand by this, the only time in our copyright history, which is now nearly 200 years old, and in 2024, it'll be 200 years since we first considered a legislated copyright act, to legislate a copyright act, but it's the only time in that, that early period, 1832 to 1841, that we were left alone to fashion a copyright act that was focused only on our domestic sociocultural and economic interests. There was no interference by the British. There was no American kind of, you know, um, uh, bullying or, for want of a better. But, you know, we weren't caught in, in any of the, 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 the political, the external political forces that we continue to be caught in today, frankly. So, I mean, that's the other part that's really, really interesting for me. But if you look at the British North America as a whole, so including Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and later the province of Canada, these were developing societies in the 19th century. And, and their interests at the time, and it was so the Americans particularly were very vocal about this um, as well in the 19th century, that they, they, their interest was in securing affordable access to the latest ideas and knowledge. That, that Those ideas and knowledge at the time were contained in books, in print material. That was the technology that, uh, for mass dissemination of knowledge. And so their, their, their argument always was, as a society that needs to grow and to educate its population, we need to have affordable material. Um, this is very similar to similar arguments raised today by uh, developing societies around the world. So there's, there's that element of looking for affordable access to the latest ideas is sort of, in a way, a universal principle. 
But within the Canadian context, British North America and later Canada, they were, we were British, we were British colony at the time, and we were living, which we still live, next to a copyright powerhouse in the United States. Now, there was a lot written about Anglo-American copyright relations in the last half of the 19th century, but very little was written about the Canadian experience of these events. And the geopolitics of copyright back then, and I'd say I'd argue it's still here with us today, but in the early, in the 19th century, the geopolitics of copyright, especially the, the, um, the dispute, sort of ongoing dispute between the United States and the United Kingdom about you know, the Americans recognizing British copyright interests, which they didn't do until um, 1891, uh, that there was a, a very, there's a lot of tension between the Americans and the British. Well, Canada was caught in the middle of this, and this had a significant and damaging effect on Canadian interests. So what is distinctly Canadian? What what the, the Canadians' position, Canada's position in this environment prompted sort of British North American parliamentarians and later Canadian policymakers to find creative legislative solutions that tried to satisfy both like British copyright interests. So we were mindful of making sure that, you know, British interests were, were uh, respected. But at the same time, we sought solutions that would support Canadian educational and national cultural aspirations. And I think that the idea of, and I mean, we're, well, in the, if you read the book, you'll see we weren't that successful at it, but we tried, we tried a lot. But, and I think the idea of trying to find accommodation and compromise is a very Canadian thing. And, and I, you know, I, I was really I'm finding that back in the records, especially in the copyright story, was particularly, um, you know, uh, gratifying for me. I mean, I found it very uh, interesting that, that there were what, you know, we were looking for comprom or accommodation of difference um, in a way that supported both interests, you know, sort of the win-win kind of situation. Before reading your book, I sort of expect perhaps a, a more sort of traditional sort of legal history. Uh, and yet I found there was a very rich variety of personalities like Dr. Francois Blanchet and Joseph Lancaster, who sort of had a lot of narrative depth to the study of copyright in pre-Confederation Canada. So I wonder if you could sort of tell us a bit about what kind of insights into copyright, book history and pre-Confederation Canada that emerged from studying some of these uh, personalities. Well, I have to admit that originally, <laughs> when I started this work, and that's why it's taken 20 years, I was going down the path of the narrow legal approach. You know, I, as, as explained, I was teaching copyright law. I was intrigued by these uh, statements by the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, there was, a, you know, Federal Court of Appeal, and and I thought, okay, I want to know why. Like, want to know why? What? What? Why? What is? What was our influence? What was the early influence at the very beginning? And I thought it was just a matter of going to look for. Well, I hope there was scholarship on the subject. There wasn't. But then I thought, okay, I look at the normal tools of legal research. You know, I'll look at the parliamentary debates. I'll look at uh, any court decisions. I'll look at legal commentary, you know, and I'll, I'll get an understanding of why uh, lower Canadians in 1832 saw fit to enact a Copyright Act, you know, and that, and that would be sufficient. And I, I was really naive because I didn't realize that they didn't keep parliamentary, they didn't record parliamentary debates in 1824 or 1832 or even 1841, um, that there were no decided cases or at least no reported ones that I could rely on and I couldn't find any commentary. And so, um, you know, once I realized that uh, there was nothing that I could look, turn to that 
you know, within the four corners of legal research, I started to, and, and at around the same time, I was introduced to this incredibly rich and diverse scholarship in book history and the research methods of book historians. So that's when I started to look at the lives of the politicians who put the legislation forward, like Dr. Francois Blanchet, uh, as well as the individuals, teachers like Joseph Lancaster, who petitioned the legislature for financial support to print their school books. And then I started to look at publishers' archives and copyright registration records. And once I started to look at all of these pieces, uh, this the sort of the things seemed to things fell into place. And I started this incredibly rewarding and enriching multidisciplinary project, though, as I said, it did take a long time to get through all of the material. And that's when I started to find these compelling stories and the fascinating individuals uh, whose stories I tell in the book. Um, so, you know, Francois Blanchette and John Nielsen in the legislature who cared deeply about the society they were building and most importantly who cared about universal public education. They were sort of, they were students of the Scottish and English Enlightenment and the idea that, you know, uh, literacy and learning was sort of part of, 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 of human kind of uh, well-being was, you know, part of the what they brought to the, to the legislature. I mean, it wasn't only them, but, you know, there was a whole group of these enlightenment enlightened individuals sort of who care deeply about uh, bringing education to, to particularly sort of the you know, rural poor in, in, in lower Canada, um, French and English. I mean, of course, they weren't as inclusive as they might have been, but, you know, they did they were, they were trying to address a social problem that they felt very strongly about. Um, Joseph Lancaster and Joseph-François Perrault, for example, who petitioned, who were education reformers, who petitioned the legislature because they were writing, there was this writing school books and, and they just couldn't afford the cost of printing. You know, and, and then the upper Canadian, Alexander Davidson, who saw in the copyright law a means to foster Canadian cultural identity that was distinct from the Americans. And what was interesting to me is the issues they confronted then are not that different from copyright debates today. You know, this was very modern in that sense um, and humbling as a result, you know, to sort of really uh, look at how, how committed and how thoughtful these individuals were. You know, sophisticated in their in their understanding of the law, um, and so um, it 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 was really that was really really interesting to me. But one of the things I learned from from them too is looking at uh, copyright policy is, and it's again similar to what we do today. You know, they identified a problem. The problem was uh, we need we need a, we need. We need school books for our schools. Um, the cost of printing is too high. And so our solution is a copyright act, which will give an incentive to publishers to, you know, take risks with printing um, in or, you know, on the basis that they will have 28 years of a monopoly to recover and make a profit off of the book. Um, it would encourage authors to write because publishers would, you know, pay them for the copyright, and, you know, we've got this wonderful system, and so we're going to see all the results that we expect. And so what they, they did was they, they identified the problem and they solved it through a copyright act. So the, the legislature itself thought, we've solved the problem now. We're not going to give any more printing subsidies because copyright should deal with it. Uh, you know, so we, they stopped listening to these petitioners and they, they turned them away. But there is no way for them, and there's similarly, there's no way, we don't do this either today, for us to, deter, to determine whether or not the law actually does what it was intended to do. 
So once they enact the law, then they move on to the next thing. And what really struck me was that it it was clear from studying the impact of the Act of 1832, so the first Lower Canadian Act, you know, asking the question, did the cost of books go down? Did, did publishers take more risks? Were they printing, um, you know, a, a larger variety of school books? Were they, you know, trying to be a bit more sort of, um, you know, engage in more speculative publishing? Did they grow? Did the, the industry grow as a result of copyright? I mean, all the things that the legislature had sort of thought that copyright would do, it it didn't actually achieve these objectives. You know, there's no evidence that book prices went down. There's no evidence. There's certainly, you know, I, I give, you know, offer three um, uh, you know, case studies or examples where, you know, printing was just still such a precarious industry that copyright made no difference, really, in the lives of printers and publishers at the time. And it didn't seem to encourage, you know, greater authorship, certainly in those first years. So, you know, this idea that lawmakers think the law does, you know, they they enact a law to, to achieve certain objectives and never really test whether it does in fact meet these objectives. This is very sobering for me as a lawyer and a legal scholar to sort of really be able to see that, you know, they thought copyright would do something and it didn't actually achieve those objectives. And if it did, it it happened much later and for different reasons. So that was something that I found, you know, it was really interesting to learn. I mean, that's where the stories of these individuals sort of unpacking all of it and looking at the copyright registration data gave me this, these, you know, this longitudinal ability to assess some of the impact of the law. Um, but I did find that, to me, that it is this, the, the individuals and sort of their, their um, you know, uh, their commitment to the cause of education, school books, and, and you know, printing and publishing to me was, was really, really um eye-opening. Actually, on that theme of unintended consequences, I was also sort of struck about the role copyright played in constructing a distinct identity in the colonies prior to Confederation. Could you tell us, I guess, two things? First, maybe how that, that developed and whether there were any differences or similarities in the sort of march towards the distinct identity in both the English and French-speaking communities. So, as I've explained, at its inception, so copyright was a vehicle to support public education by by encouraging school book production. But of course, what it also mattered what the content of those school books was, right? I mean, you know, the sort of the idea that um, certainly in Lower Canada, that you know, British school books didn't didn't speak to local conditions at all, um, and you know, m- this was more pronounced in Ontario and Upper Canada. The idea that American school books, you know, that you know you know, offering kind of really damaging and harmful Republican ideals was circulating within the school system, you know, that there, this idea that um, school books not only, you know, had had content that um, was intended to teach students the basics of, you know, uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic, but that history books and geography books and really had, um, you know, there's, they, 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 they have an orientation or uh, a, a way of, of describing, you know, the, the the jurisdiction in which people live, and and of course, books with foreign content didn't didn't achieve the, the the objective of you know teaching students about what it meant to be a lower Canadian or an upper Canadian or a British North American or a Canadian. 
Um, so the, the idea of producing local content for local readers became as much part of the copyright quest as, as just generally wanting to, 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 to um, enhance literacy and learning in the provinces. And for French Canadians in Lower Canada, so prior to 1840, prior to the union of Upper Canada and Lower Canada in the pro into the province of Canada, liter literacy and learning offered the prospect of political emancipation as well. So a, a learned populace, the French, if, if they, you know, uh, who were who were educated, um, could govern govern, it, uh, govern themselves. The French Canadians could govern themselves instead of being governed by the British. And so there was a, a, a sort of strong political element in in the French Canadian search for identity through uh, copyright, sort of by encouraging book production. And then with the forced union of Upper Canada and Lower Canada in 1840, and then that's when French Canadians were, became a minority in, a, in an English-speaking province. They were a majority in a, in an, in a French province in Lower Canada, um, even though governed largely by Brit the British and English-speaking English Canadians. The French Canadians were threatened now with assimilation. And so they, the, 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 the sort of, they developed very much a sort of an idea of la survivance, that in order to survive, their language, cultures, and, and laws had to remain intact and had to remain French. And so through their literature, history, laws, etc., sort of that became very, a very prominent theme and I think fostered an even greater uh, attention to distinctly French-Canadian identity through again, and I mean, you see it manifested in the way in which, you know, um, as I track the copyright registrations, the kinds of books that were registered for copyright in those periods, um, at books in French, books written by um, uh, French Canadians in the province of Canada. And at the same time, English Canadians, their, their issues were different. They were trying to find an identity that was distinct from British identity, that they had something that was British. They were British North American, not British. Um, and something, so basically the precursor, I guess, of what it means in a way to be Canadian. Um, and for them, largely meant anti-American and not British. So there was something in between that they were, but they couldn't quite figure it out. Um, and uh, But I think both these linguistic communities understood that identity could be fostered through books. So these books would give voice to either French-Canadian or English-Canadian stories. So Canadian content, I mean, it's very much, you know, a 19th century Canadian thing as much as a 20th century Canadian thing. And as Confederation neared, when you, and again, I, I only studied, I, I, I mean, identified this through uh, the copyright registration records and the um, um, the the, the uh, journals of the, the of Parliament, sort of where they were still discussing books, and they were they were sort of trying to promote, they foster the works of native talent. Um, you know that that they understood that uh, that 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 um, copyright had a, a, a cultural identity formation element to it. And as we're, as we near confederation, you start to see uh, books that were registered for copyright or material that was registered for copyright that had distinctly nationalistic and patriotic themes. You know, a lot of patriotic songs that started to be written and registered for copyright or photographs of, you know, Canadian events or things like that, that started to, to become more pronounced uh, as confederation neared. But what I did find the most striking uh, in, in this early, the province of Canada, so 1841 to 18, 1867, so that, as I've explained, French Canadians and English Canadians had their own reasons 
for looking to copyright to promote their culture and identity through books. There's also a sense of accommodation of difference. I've said that before, but between French Canadians and English Canadians. And that the recognition that they had together, collectively, an identity as British North Americans that was distinct from either British or French. So the members of the legislature, you know, uh, were individuals who were often bilingual, and, and they promoted um, and extolled kind of the virtues of both French Canadian and English Canadian books. You know, they were very intent on fostering native talent. Well, native talent meant both, you know, books on botany by, you know, a, a, a French Canadian author and, you know, poems by an English Canadian poet. You know, that, that, that there was the sense that this was the collective literature was both French and English. Um, there also is this parliament that lobbied the British uh, for French language rights, including, you know, they, this uh, petition requesting the elimination of a 7% tariff on the importation of French language books. You know, and, and they, they argued on behalf of the French Canadian population saying they should have access, and I love this phrase, to the three great departments of religion, literature, and law. That, you know, that these, the, the French population needed these books in French and the, the tariff of 7% meant that these books were unaffordable. And so um, the, the, um, uh, the, the province of Canada, the parliament, uh, petitioned the British. They refused. I mean, so in a sense, you know, I think there's a distinction between, you know, French-Canadian, English-Canadian relations and French-Canadian and British relations um, in this period. Because I think there was, as I say, a little bit more... Um, common ground between French Canadians and English Canadians in this period. And, and that I did find striking. For maybe any students who are listening or other sort of researchers listening to, uh, to this interview, could you maybe give some insights or suggestions on areas where a study on copyright could help uh, bring new insights into Canada's history? Gosh, there's so much more work to do. And so I'd encourage anyone, graduate students, anyone in, in, in areas, not just law, to start to look at a lot of this history and start to unpack. Part of the intention behind my book was to provide enough detail and enough sort of references to primary sources to enable further work. Um, you, know, the, you know, I've done some the groundwork, the, maybe the, some of the foundational work, but there's a lot more that can be done, um, you know, on including just picking up where I left off. For example, studying the registrations, the copyright registrations for, uh, you know, post-Confederation Canada. So from 1868 uh, onward, when the first federal copyright act was passed, um, and looking at the registrations and trying to, you know, elicit kind of uh, insights about patterns and trends, and you know, who, who was excluded from participation, what kinds of works were excluded, what kinds of works were included, um, who were, you know, is there a growing sense of who authors were in Canada, um, the types of works that were deemed to be um, worth registering because you know, copyright didn't arise automatically at the time. There was a registration system. So you had to go through the trouble of registering. It had to matter somehow. Um, and so I think there's a lot to unpack from looking, you know, taking, I end at Confederation, but in terms of the, the, the data I looked at, but there's certainly just a very simple project to take that forward or to look at the similar, take a similar approach um, and really a deep, 
deeper dive than I did into, for example, copyright history of Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia was the only other province other than Lower Canada and then the province of Canada to enact their own Copyright Act prior to Confederation. It's quite different from the Lower Canadian Act. And my argument is that the Lower Canadian Act was actually the precursor of, of the first Canadian Copyright Act in 1868. So Nova Scotia, the Nova Scotian text kind of um, was not picked up. Uh, after Confederation, but there would be similar kind of analyses of copyright registration data in Nova Scotia. Um, so there, though, those those are simple things that I think would would help uh, build out what I've already done into a much larger Canadian or British North American narrative. The other thing that I find fascinating, one of the reasons I wanted to do this work is not only to tell a Canadian story and the Canadian, uh, the Canadian story rather than what I had read, which is, you know, American or British accounts of Canadian um, copyright, uh, but to tell Canada's story was also that in telling Canada's story, I'm, I'm hoping that this will prompt others who, who around the world, you know, in different jurisdictions to study their copyright stories so that we could have a map, maybe a much larger map, our comparative copyright history project, where we can actually start to un understand the ways in which copyright landed differently on different jurisdictions and that, you know, the, the story of let's say the, the colonial cop, you know jurisdictions, sort of the col former colonies of England or France or or the Netherlands or whatever, that their stories are equally important. That it's not just the stories of the the, the empire or the imperial authorities that matter. So this idea of of, of different copyright history projects, um, I think, is it would be wonderful. And there's some people have started in Australia, and there's some in, people in India, sort of writing about you know, early copyright, their copyright histories. Michael Bernhack in Israel wrote about copyright in Mandate Palestine. And so there's, there's, um, there, there are, there are projects like this starting, but it would be wonderful, I think, if we could create this much larger map of comparative copyright history. But one of the things that I think is also really, really important is, is for scholars who are interested in taking a critical approach to Canada's copyright history. So to look at, for example, who is excluded. Um, this is a history about sort of, you know, French and English white settlers. It doesn't touch on, and I, I you know, I, 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 I refer somewhat to Indigenous issues, but I think there's a whole lot of work to be done in relation to Indigenous perspectives to Canadian copyright history as one example. The other is work that I'm continuing, which came out of, of my research, relates to the you know handful of women who registered their copyright between 1841 and 1867. And I find that intriguing. I mean, first of all, the statute and the way it was drafted, it, it presumed that men, only men could be authors. Not that obviously women, I mean, it was generally accepted women could write and they could publish, but under, but could, could women secure copyright? The statute itself sort of left them out. Um, but women were registering their copyright in the province of Canada. Um, and so I'm intrigued about these individuals, these women, why, why they didn't have to, as I said, it was a registration system. It cost money. Um, what is it that copyright meant to them that they, they went through that, um, process to secure their property right over their writings? The other particular issue relates to the married women who registered their copyright because under matrimonial property laws of the day, 
married women couldn't own property or if they could, they couldn't actually enforce or do any, you know, implement or do anything with that property. The property became that of their husbands. So why would these women have bothered? I mean, in a way, like what was it that, how did it matter to them? And I think it says a lot about identity and agency um, and the, the ability of these women to claim that they have commercial, they have a commercial identity, that they can participate in the economic life of the, of the, 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 the province within which they lived. So I think there's a lot to to write about on on gender and copyright, um, and I'm I've started to look a little bit more closely at the women at these women. But there's of course an amazing number of possibilities, and so I just say if anyone's interested, not to be shy and get in t- get in touch with me. I have a lot of material that I'm happy to share, but I think there's just a lot of questions that this kind of approach to between you know law and book history sort of opens the door to. So I really, I'm, I really appreciate that question. I think there's, there's a lot to unpack about the history and how it, it helps us even understand our copyright, cultural, and communications policy today. Myra, I, I really want to thank you very much for joining us today. It was a wonderful discussion. Thank you. I'm really grateful. Thanks, Simon. It was really good to chat. My guest today was Myra Tofik, author of For the Encouragement of Learning, The Origins of Canadian Copyright Law. This book was published by the University of Toronto Press in 2023. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Simon Nate. This interview was recorded on September 26, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team, who also support the Champlain Society.